Welcome to Biblical Tapestry Podcast Season 4, Episode 10, A Study in 1 Peter. Biblical Tapestry is a podcast where we explore how the Bible is its own commentary and how the gospel is thoroughly woven from Genesis to Revelation. We've been answering the question, how should believers respond to suffering? In today's episode, we see how Christ suffered and died as the righteous one to bring us to God. Peter writes some things here that are open to many interpretations, and we may not know all the answers, but we will discuss that today. And for those of you following week by week, I took some time off for vacation, and now we are back to the last verses of 1 Peter 3. And these verses required some deep diving. So let's get started in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All right, back to verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Well, the interpretation of verse 18 is fairly clear. You know, suffering should not intimidate believers, as the suffering of Christ was in the means of which he was exalted. Christ suffered once for sins. The troubles of this present time are only temporary, and victory is assured through Christ who triumphed over evil. Christ died for believers for sure, but Peter tells us that he also suffered in that process. Now that establishes a connection to Peter's readers, who are also in the midst of suffering. The suffering of Christ was definitive as he offered himself as a sin offering for all of mankind. Believers may indeed suffer for their faith, but it's not for the sins of others as Christ did. That was unique to Christ, as he suffered for the unrighteous, and that was undeserved. By doing so, Christ sets an example for us. That is why Peter encouraged his readers to continue to do what was right, even through suffering. Now John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him, being Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ died at the hand of men, to provide a way for people to become right with God. And now we start to get in some intense controversy. 
over the last phrase in this verse 18 all the way to verse 21. The last part of verse 18 says, being put to death in flesh, but being but made alive in the spirit. Now the contrast between flesh and spirit in the New Testament is very common. The most sensible interpretation is that Christ was put to death in the realm of the flesh on the cross, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, raised him from the dead. Those now who belong to Christ, even if they are suffering for their faith, will also ultimately share in Christ's resurrection, put to death in the flesh, and then raised by the Holy Spirit of God. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. All right, and that leads us to verse 19, which says, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Oh, now it gets pretty interesting <laughs> from an interpretation point of view. In fact, Martin Luther wrote, A wonderful text is this, in a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. Well, I can certainly relate to that. And there are a number of viewpoints, and we will summarize most of them here. The first viewpoint is, it came from Augustine, who understood the text to refer to Christ by means of the Holy Spirit preaching through Noah to those who lived while Noah was building the ark. The spirits in prison were those who were enslaved to sin during Noah's day, and any notion of Christ descending to hell, as some believe, is excluded. Now the second interpretation is that some have understood Peter as referring to the Old Testament saints who died and were liberated by Christ between his death and resurrection. Now others think that the imprisoned spirits are the sinful humans that died during the flood of Noah. Between Christ's death and resurrection, Christ descended to hell and preached to them, offering a opportunity to repent and be saved. This leads to a belief that all are given a second chance to avoid hell. But the majority view is where we will hang out our theological hat, and that is that this text describes Christ's proclamation of victory and judgment, catch me here, over evil angels. Now, who are these evil angels? Well, we're introduced to them perhaps in Genesis chapter 6 verse 1. When a man began to multiply, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, and the men of renown. Now, these angels were imprisoned because of their sin. This is not a passage of Christ descending to hell, but a pronouncement of victory over evil angelic powers. And I will attempt to explain as simply as possible. When Peter says that Christ went, he went somewhere, that word in Greek 
is poriomai. Poriomai. And it always refers to the ascension of Christ, never a descent. If Christ also speaks, as some say, through the Holy Spirit, through Noah, then he doesn't need to go anywhere, and the word poriomai means something has gone somewhere. The word spirits that's also found in these verses is the word, the Greek word pneumata. And pneumata is more associated with angels as spirits than it is with human beings, almost without exception. And the Greek word for prison here is phalaki. It is always in Scripture an earthly location. It has never been used as a place of punishment for humans after death. And the term phalaki, prison, is also used in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. Revelation 27 says, And when the thousand years are ended, that's the end of the millennial period of Christ, Satan will be released from his prison, his phalaki, and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. The evil angels in Genesis, according to Jewish tradition, were imprisoned. We find reference to that in Jude, verses 5 and 7. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example, but undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So if Christ preached a second chance to anyone, as some say, why would Peter need to tell his readers to persevere and endure suffering? So, so much of these first three views do fall apart under examination. So that leaves us with the best view being Christ proclaims victory over demonic spirits after his death and resurrection. Again, the word spirits most likely refers to angels here. The notion that these spirits are imprisoned fits with Satan's imprisonment in Revelation 20. And the fact that Christ went anywhere in the Greek word, again, poriomai, refer to Jesus' exaltation and Jesus' exaltation to God's right hand. Christ proclaims victory over demonic angels as the crucified and risen Lord. This eliminates that Christ preached between his death and resurrection. Now when it says that he preached here, that is the word ekarizen, it does not necessarily mean that preaching was the preaching of the gospel, but possibly a victory, a preaching of victory being heralded to the imprisoned demonic spirits. Now, why would Christ herald his death and resurrection to this imprisoned demonic angels? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we've come to that point. We just don't know. It's just that the Spirit of God does not only raise Christ, but also empowered him to claim victory. Now let's see how this fits within verse 20. And I want to read 18, 19, 20 together because it 
context is the most important thing here. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, if we see the imprisoned spirits, being the evil angels that sinned by cohabitating with women, and the incident in Genesis 6, verses 1-4, through 4, it immediately precedes the flood narrative, in fact, probably culminated the enormity of sin on earth to justify the extermination of humanity, except for eight people, Noah and his family. This fits the patience of God with what was happening on earth while the ark was being constructed. God could have just wiped out humanity without the flood and began again with Noah, but he didn't. God was giving those on earth an opportunity to repent during this time. It seems like the fate of the angels and the human beings were entangled. However, only a few would be saved, again, those eight humans. What does it mean that these eight persons were brought safely through water when water, obviously, in the flood account, was the object of judgment? This water that separated Noah and his family from their wicked contemporaries also saved Noah and his family by keeping them safe until a new life began. Verse 21 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now what is striking here is that Peter states that baptism now saves you. We know that all scripture describes baptism as being symbolic for what has happened to a believer. Paul says in Romans 6.1, What shall we say then? Are we, continue, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is symbolic. What Peter's stating here is just as the floodwaters destroyed those who were swallowed by it, Baptism is also waters of destruction in the fact that we cannot survive that environment for very long. However, believers are baptized with Christ and rescued from death through Christ's resurrection, and baptism symbolizes that. Peter also is saying that baptism is not the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience from a cleansed and forgiven soul. Christ triumphed over death, and we also are demonstrating being raised in newness of life, as Paul says, through baptism. Baptism does not remove moral filth or cleanse the inside of the soul, but shows the cleansing and removal of sin as accomplished by Christ on the cross. James writes in James 1.21, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We find in Titus uh, chapter 3, verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, 
so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Baptism does not simply save because someone has been submerged, but is symbolic and a pledge of good conscience. The one baptized pledges to live for the glory of God. Christ in his sacrificial death is the means that believers are brought into God's presence. Verse 22, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him? Christ is in heaven on the right hand of God interceding for believers. Sitting on this authoritative right hand of God, Christ has authority over all things, including angels, authorities, and powers. All of these are subjected to him. Paul says in Romans 8:37, Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, triumphed over all demonic forces, and believers will reign together with him. In our next episode 11, we'll start chapter 4 of 1 Peter, where Peter tells his readers to prepare to suffer as Christ did, and to not let sin have dominion over them. Well, I know this was kind of tough today, but I hope you enjoy this season 4 and the first season of first letter of Peter. I hope it speaks to you. I pray this study blesses you. I encourage you to spend time in God's Word. That's so important to know. We are also Biblical Tapestry on Facebook and Instagram. I encourage you to please like and share this podcast. You've discovered something from it. God bless, and I pray that you're doing well.